Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is Joe Hagan, your co-host, Emily Jane Fox, still out on maternity leave. A hello to her. Um, As we record today, it's like a harrowing moment in the history of the U.S. and in the Middle East and everything that's going on in Afghanistan. The videos we're seeing, the news reports we're getting is terrifying. Uh, There's a lot of chaos um, and everybody is wondering what's going to happen. We're, I'm just this morning looking at videos of people trying to get to the airport, and it's heartbreaking. It's just incredibly heartbreaking. And uh, as somebody who's been in the journalism business for over 20 years, you know this war has been in the backdrop of my career and all of our lives, uh, you know, throughout. And uh, here we finally arrived at this moment. It's terrible. And uh, when I was thinking about who to bring on to talk about this, the first person that came to my mind is somebody that I have some acquaintance with and who agreed to come on. And I'm so happy to welcome Saad Mosseni, who uh, is the chief executive of the Moby Group, who broadcasts TV shows and news in Afghanistan from Kabul. So welcome, Saad. Thank you, Joe. Good to be on. I want to talk to you about your own experiences operating a really important company in Afghanistan, which, by the way, uh, began after the fall of the Taliban in 2001, um, right? Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Tell us, uh, though, like um, what you're sort of hearing from the ground. You know, you have a news company right there in the heart of, of Kabul. So tell us what, what you're hearing from your employees, from your from your people who are doing their work? Well, there's a lot going on. Uh, obviously, the, the president fled Afghanistan on Sunday afternoon. Uh, there was probably about 10 or 12 hours of mayhem and confusion, which forced the Taliban to move into the city. I think the Taliban were fairly uh, content to be on the outskirts and wait for the transition to happen, and then they would move in slowly. But they were forced to move in quickly. It's still not 100% stable. There's a lot going on. People knocking on people's doors, confiscating their vehicles. Uh, some are Taliban, some are criminal organizations. The Taliban leadership has started to move into Kabul from Pakistan, from Doha, uh, from within Afghanistan. So that's sort of, for, for the news guys, that's interesting, that's exciting, because they, they, they have something to follow and to, to monitor. So there's a lot of like meetings, the Taliban meeting with the former president uh, Karzai, Abdullah Abdullah, former cabinet ministers, perhaps some civil society members, they're talking to the media. They're trying to win hearts and minds in a very Taliban sort of a way by, you know, doing some television and radio. And there's, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure they're excited. And uh, for the rest of us, you know, we're watching nervously as to what to, what they do next. There are pockets of resistance, of course, still. Um, there have been some protests. Some women protested two days ago in Kabul with placards uh, challenging the Taliban. There were some protests in in the east part of the country in in support of our flag because the Taliban have lowered our flag and have raised their own, which is the sort of white flag with the Islamic declaration on it. So there's, there's a lot going on. And for the news guys, it's a, it's a, it's a busy day. It's a busy period. And are they, they're Afghan citizens, 
I take it, some of them, many of them, or what? What is the makeup all of, of the, all of them? All of them, yeah. All of them, yeah. So are they? They themselves are, um, you know, they are they're living in a moment of risk for their personal safety and lives. Well, it's, we have no safety net. You know, up until three days ago, we had uh, we had the government, we had rule of law, we had parliament, we had the courts. We have the international community. There are various safety nets. You know, if the government went, you know, was tough with you, you had the courts. If the courts were tough with you, you could rely on parliament to legislate to protect you. Um, we had the international community. We could always call the EU or the Human Rights Commission. But now we have nothing. And so for these guys to continue to operate in an environment that's completely alien to us. I mean, someone said, well, how does it feel? To have the Taliban in Kabul, I said it's it's like you wake up one day, and there are Martians on the streets of New York or L.A. You just don't know how they're going to think and how how they think or how they're going to behave. So that that nervousness is 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 palpable even from you know where I'm sitting in London. Right, and um, obviously you you talked about them trying to win the hearts and minds. This is sort of phase one, and we don't know if this is representative of how they intend to operate or whether they're just trying to soften things up and, and create stability before they bring in Sharia law and all the kinds of hardline extremists, you know, uh, behaviors that they're known for. Um, you had on Tolo News, which is the Afghan's leading independent news network under the Mobi Group, um, you had a, a, a Taliban representative on live television. It was the first time that that's happened in Afghanistan, uh, and with a female anchor, female presenter. So that on its face was sort of novel and probably pretty important for them because your, you know, your TV network reaches a large majority of Afghans. How meaningful was that to you? And, um, you know, what did it mean to you that that happened? Well, it's important because, I mean, they, they keep saying we're going to continue to allow free media to operate inside of Afghanistan. But, uh, you know, you want those words matched with action. And that was an important piece of action, that he would yeah. physically come in and actually sit opposite a woman and be interviewed. It's a good thing. It sets a new standard for the Taliban. And apparently since then, others have also talked to reporters. Uh, it's interesting because some of the conservative ones um, are willing to get interviewed but they, they they refuse to look at the woman. So they're being interviewed, looking at the oh, wow. camera, for example, or the cameraman. It's going to take a while for these guys to adjust. Even in 2002, we noticed that, you know, people are apprehensive or nervous, but it's it's amazing how quickly they can adjust if the environment's right. We talk, talk often about um, media facilitating social change, and this is social change we're witnessing firsthand. Now, all of this could end in three days if the Taliban leadership decides no more interviews with women. You know, this is not an organization or a movement um, where individuals have a say. They have a media commission. They have a religious commission. They have various other commissions that can dictate how members behave. Um, so I wouldn't get too excited, but it's a good start. Yeah. Well, one of the things you pointed out to me when we spoke earlier this week, and which you also mentioned in your Washington Post's uh, column that you published earlier this week uh, or today, um, that you know the median age in Afghanistan is 18, right? I mean, this is a very young country. 
if you're 18 today, you were born after the Taliban left power when the U.S. first uh, entered the country after 9-11. Um, and the Taliban themselves are also largely made up of young people who have come up in a different age. This is not the Taliban before, right? Of course, there's going to be cultural bridges and similar, you know, their fathers, right, were the ones who were probably in the Taliban uh, in the 90s, right? And that was a different generation, one that didn't grow up with media. How impactful is that cultural change? I mean, we don't know the answer to that, but that's what we're about to learn, right? Yes, I, I think it's it's really difficult uh, to once you know once you open people's minds, it's 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 difficult to go back. Once you find out that the Earth is not flat, it's going to be hard to convince you it is flat, right? So the majority of these young people have been exposed to the world, have been exposed to different environments, different um, types of music, different types of soap operas, different points of view actually. Because we, we've always believed in sort of intellectual humility and being, you know, we, actually having learned from your experience in the U.S., let's not create bubbles where, you know, people just feel comfortable in that particular bubble. Let's, let's expose people to different points of view. Let's, you know, promote debate, for example. Um, so it's going to be very difficult for these people to go back. That's not to say the Taliban will not try because they can. You look at North Korea, you look at other countries, they can really clamp down on free speech and certain rights. And if the government is cruel enough and dictatorial enough, there's nothing you can do about it. But the underlying uh, environment is actually not bad in that something like 60 or 65% of the population is under the age of 21 or 22. Of this young generation of Afghans, 75 or you know perhaps higher are educated. They can read and write. I'm not sure about the Taliban, when I'm talking about the majority of Afghans. The majority... Mm -hmm. uh, clear majority now have a an urban type experience. By urban, I mean that they live to a family that's perhaps from another ethnicity. They go to school together. They watch TV. They have a mobile phone. They have that urban experience. So the country is a changed country. And people ask me, "What well, has Afghanistan been a waste of money and time? And I say, no, because you have transformed perhaps the most backward country on the planet into one that sort of resembles a modern state where women's rights are respected, not just in Kabul or in Herat or Mazar-e-Sharif, even in small rural communities. This think tank did this paper on it that even in small towns in like in the middle of nowhere in the South, women are getting involved in, in you know, social things and community things and so forth. So the country has changed for the better, I think. Um, it's going to be it's going to be hard to go back, um, and that's why it's it's important that the gains of the last two decades are not just given away. Well, let's talk about you know if I am a young Afghan man or woman living in let's say not right in the heart of a city, but outside of it somewhere in a semi-rural area, but I've got a satellite and some electricity, and I can draw in some channels from, that you broadcast. Um, tell me about the cultural experiences of people who are looking at your channel for the last 10 years. What would we have been exposed to? What, what was I used to watching for the last 10, 15 years? Okay, well, up until 2000 and 
2002 or 2003, you were watching nothing because the, the Taliban had banned television. And there was no music uh, on, on the radio and no women's voices. So you only had religious chants and news and no TV. So in 2003, we launched the first independent radio station with like pop music and chit chat and news on the hour. In 2004, we launched the first independent uh, television station. So I'll, I'll just walk you through the lineup in terms of what's on TV. Um, six o'clock, we have the six o'clock news, which is, and in terms of news, Afghanistan is probably one of the freest countries on the planet, um, certainly in the neighborhood, but I would say even beyond Asia and Africa and so South America, that we, we are very, very free. Dangerous, but very free. So you have the news bulletins that on certain days reach up to 10, 12 million uh, viewers. And then 6.30, you may have a game show. At 7 o'clock, you may have a soap opera. At uh, the hour after that, you may have a you know, music show, like a format, like an idol-type format. You would have a, you know, a, a variety show later in the evening, like a Conan O'Brien, one of those types of shows. You may have late news at 10 p.m. And then after that, you may have you know, a, a panel casual discussion program, which is part comedy, part current affairs. And then, of course, on the weekends, you may have sports, you may have football, you, you may have the equivalent of the UFC, you may have cricket, a morning show like you would have like the Today Show. Uh, we have those types of programs. Mid-morning would have like, you know, women that, you know, uh, programs that appeal to younger and older women who are at home, um, who look after children. Uh, we have programs like Sesame Street uh, and other children's programs uh, in the afternoon. So it's... It's probably the lineup is not that different to what you would have in the U.S. on one of your major networks. Right. And are you able to measure how many people are watching these programs and, and get a sense of like, you know, how many eyeballs are have been looking at it? So we, we figure that um, something like 70 or 80 percent of the population gets to watch some TV at some stage during the, the week. So uh, I think a lot of people invest in television sets, but some who don't, there are communal TV sets. So they would go to a neighbor's house or watch it in a shop uh, if they live close by or watch it at some cousin's house if they live in some some village in, in the middle of nowhere. We think, uh, not, well, we based on the surveys we've done for some of our top rating shows, like say the Afghan star, which is the pop idol format, for the finals, we would get up to 12, even uh, more viewers for that particular episode. And that's like a third of the country and probably 50% of the television watching audience. Um, if there's a major news event, people would watch the news bulletin, similar numbers. Um, some of the soap operas, for example, uh, like, the, you know, we show a lot of different types of soap operas from different countries, for example, the Turkish series are huge in Afghanistan, and they would get similar viewership, maybe per perhaps not as, as many as 10 or 12 million, maybe less. Um, but nonetheless, um, you know, the finale would get that many viewers. So, you know, the numbers are pretty staggering. Yeah. Well, it's a version of things you might see in the West, right? But aimed in, you know, with a different, different languages, different dialects. Um, but if, if we were, uh, the kind of event that's going on in Afghanistan today or happening to anywhere here, we, it would be on the news. Everybody would be glued to it, 
right? The way they are to any kind of human disaster. Um, just today, I, I was just looking on Twitter a moment ago, and there's an investigative reporter um, named Sophia Jones. And uh, I'm just going to read what she um, tweeted a moment ago. I have never felt so helpless and so ashamed. My phone is full of messages from Afghans, friends, colleagues, sources, kind people who opened their homes and hearts, many who worked on U.S.-funded projects and with Americans begging, pleading, screaming for help uh, to get out. And so far, no luck. And this is just one person who's getting these phones. The the level of desperation is intense. Obviously, uh, people are not heartened by whatever the Taliban is saying about, you know, we're going to allow women to do this or that, or, you know, they're terrified, right? And there's good reason to be based on prior, you know, actions and behaviors from this group. You know, you have the Tolo News organization and, you know, you're broadcasting to these people. Um, This is a very precarious political situation in a way for this newsroom. Mm. Are you covering what this woman's talking about. Are you showing these videos of people scrambling to the airport and freaking out? I mean, how are you responding to that? Well, I mean, we, we, you know, for us, it's in our DNA to A, tell the truth, um, and B, to, to protect certain values. Um, we didn't go into Afghanistan. I mean, obviously it's a business opportunity, but when we first started off, I mean, there, there was no business, there was no commerce. Um, we just thought, well, this would be interesting. Let's do this. And it wasn't really the business developed, not so much because we had this great strategy. It's just, it's just, it was an accidental business of sorts. So that to us is very important. So we're going to continue to tell the truth until we're not allowed to. The protests, which I described, we've covered, we've just, we've covered the mayhem at the airport. Uh, we've covered the lawlessness over the last two or three days. And we'll continue to cover these events um, until we're not allowed to. I mean, my my own feeling is that one of these days we're going to upset someone enough for them to say, well, enough's enough, you know. <laughs> Shut your doors down. Yeah. You're, you're, yeah. you're out of here. Um, but, you know, we, we, we try to be we, – we try to yeah, – I mean, so the, it's, a, it's a balancing act, you know, how much – it's important to survive – you know, we have 400 other employees. At the same time, you have to do what's right by, by your audiences because they trust us. You know, over the years, we always tell people that the, the, the Afghan system was so corrupt and inept that people would always prefer calling the media than the pro- police or the prosecutor or the judges. Uh, we became an outlet for people's frustrations. And for them, they, there, was, there, there was some form of closure or justice if that person was exposed, a co- corrupt individual or a cruel judge, or someone, some, you know, one of the predatory characters in, Af- in, uh, in Afghanistan, you know, a story on them would give people some, some degree of satisfaction. So those things are important for us. So we have to continue doing that. At the same time, we have to remain alive to be able to report on these things. So th- these are, you know, these, th- these are things that we have to bear in mind. And it's a fine balance, balancing act. And we're not always going to get it right, but that's the intention um, without compromising our, our principles. Uh, but yes, I mean, it, it, this, what we're seeing in this country is it's not a, just a, an issue that the, the country has to face over the next few days in terms of people at the airport and so forth. 
it's something that we have to deal with for years to come. You know, the UN mm -hmm. estimates that, by the way, this was two weeks ago, those numbers may have gone up, that between one and a half to two million Afghans will be forced to flee Afghanistan. Oh you know, already the in internally displaced uh, people, I think numbers something like seven, 800,000 people within the country. The economy has tanked. I will continue to tank. It's a landlocked country. Uh, how do we feed these people? How do we look after these people who don't have a home anymore? What if the civil war gets out of hand and there's more violence? What if there's a genocide? What about ethnic cleansing? And then the refugee issue is not just about Afghanistan, but it's also about Europe and it's about the US and it's about Australia. What about the drugs? You know, Afghanistan produces something like 40 or 50% of the world heroin. So it's, it's, you know, what happens in Afghanistan doesn't necessarily stay in Afghanistan. Uh, we will suffer first, but I think the world will also feel the consequences. Well, and that is the unbelievably powerful decision that the Biden administration just made. You know, the, the ripple effect of making this decision to get out, and people have obviously and rightfully criticized how it was done. You know, was there enough preparation? Um, you know, were they blindsided by the fact that the government that was in place abandoned ship so quickly and ran out of the country? I mean, it was pathetic and sad. And the army dissolved almost instantly. And here we are. Um, can, I, can I make a point there, Joe? Please. Yeah. I want you to talk about this. Yeah. First and foremost, uh, the Americans, okay, whether they stay or don't stay, is a huge debate. A lot of Americans wanted to get out. That's fine. Uh, um, we accept that. But I just wanted to point out a couple of things. First, firstly, the Americans have been in South Korea for 70 years. For the first 20 years um, they were in South Korea, there was a dictatorship. And after 20 years of occupation or presence in South Korea, South Korea's GDP per capita was lower than Congo's. So even after 20 years, Korea had remained an underdeveloped country. The gains came much later. And 70 years on, the Americans still cannot leave South Korea for different reasons. So this idea that you're going to get closure and then you can leave is a bit naive. By April 15th, 14th, whenever Biden announced, the Americans uh, had not had any casualties since 2019. They only had two and a half thousand troops and the costs had been reduced significantly. So if they had decided to stay because of radicalism, because of drugs, because of the strategic importance of Afghanistan, because of China, it wouldn't have made much of a difference, not financially, not in terms of human life, and certainly not in terms of commitment. But then, okay, fine. The Americans decide to leave. We understand that. We respect that. It's how they left. You know, leave, but leave responsibly. And to mm -hmm. convince what should have happened over a period of six or 12 months was condensed into 12 weeks. You know, they, they did not plan, uh, you know, for, for security of the airport, for example. They did not plan for servicing and maintaining Afghan equipment. They did not plan for anything. And this it was the worst transition I could possibly imagine um being executed by anyone and and biden the other day criticized the afghan forces the afghan forces fought hard 
up until April the 14th, they lost 66,000 men from 2014 up until April 14th of this year. Now, why didn't they fight after April the 14th? Because you took everything away from them. You took air support away from them. You took away maintenance of their equipment. You took away their logistics ability. Because those things had been built into this relationship where the Americans had built this military in the mold of the US military, reliant on contractors. So it's a little bit unfair to say to a force that's lost 66,000 men has fought valiantly and only couldn't fight after you deprived them of the assistance that they had been promised and to blame it on on, on, on the Afghan forces. The other thing is that Biden, blamed, Biden said the buck stops with me, but then he went on to blame everyone else. He blamed Trump, he blamed the Afghan president, he blamed someone else. So th- unfortunately, this is on Biden. You know, other presidents may have been responsible for this decision, and whether it's the Afghan president or Trump or someone else. But really, ultimately, he owns this because he made that final decision and, and in the way that this was executed. Well, that was a, a very good point, and I don't think I even realized how many Afghans had died in the fight over the last six or seven years. And that's extraordinary and kind of even compounds the tragedy of the whole thing. Um, yeah, it's it's a bit like saying to someone, here's a key, here's a car, but it doesn't have any tires. But I expect you to get from A to B. Right. And the, and they their ability to call in U.S. airstrikes had been a part of their you know ability to hold the Taliban at bay. Um, and suddenly that was removed. So the planning and strategy, the Americans led, and air support. And, and the reason being that the Americans said, well, listen, your air force is going to take a while. You know, you can't just give people aircraft. You give them aircraft, you give, them, you give their pilots training. It takes a while. They have to fly those, you know, the, the, the aircraft for, for a period. On the planning and strategy side, the Americans always wanted to dominate and lead these teams, and they didn't build enough capacity. But on April the 15th, they said, you're on your own. So, you know, it's a bit like going to fight with someone, alongside someone, and then one day you say, listen, I'm out of here, you're on your own. You take the ammunition and weapons away from them, and you expose them completely. The tragedy is how exposed the Afghan military was after the decision to get out. Mm. Yeah. And then you blame them for not fighting. Yeah, I can see and understand full well how infuriating that is. I, I, I found it interesting and ironic, I guess, that George W. Bush, former George W. Bush, under whose administration this all began, felt we should have kept a presence there and maintained that order in the same way that you mentioned with, in, in Korea to keep the Taliban at bay. And, and we could have. And in, in, in fact, over the last couple of years, there was very nominal loss of life from American, the American side in the way we had structured our relationship with them. Um, so, you know, I'm thinking now about the reality on the ground now, after this, I think, terrible decision, the terrible way that we went about this, is that the country's now exposed and at the at, its fate is in the hands of, of the Taliban. One of the things you said in your column in the Washington Post, I wanna read it, because it's interesting. 
You said many of the Taliban's young fighters enjoy mobile phones, social media, and digital entertainment. The Taliban will have to face the social norms have changed, not only in the urban centers, but in large parts of the country. Now, we talked about this earlier, but you know, we were talking about Afghans in general. But the Taliban themselves you know, are cast as, and maybe rightfully, I just don't know enough about it, and I'm asking you, as these very severe people who are going to, you know, they're, they're conservatives <laughs> and cultural conservatives, you know, in the Afghan form. But they had satellites too, and they also were paying attention to, to Tolo and to the Moby Group broadcasting schedule. And do you put any hope in that? Or are they going to take over the station and then try to turn it into a conservative station? I mean, would they, you know, the, what, who are these people, I guess I'm asking you? Well, I mean, uh, you know, my, my concern always has been the idea of radicalism, you know, and that's why I don't, I don't get too carried away with when people say, oh, we've defeated ISIS, or we've defeated Al-Qaeda, we've defeated the Taliban. I always put the question, have you defeated radicalism, extreme, violent um, Islam, or any other religion for that matter, any other ideology that's extreme. And in Afghanistan, they have failed to do so. And as a matter of fact, today, we not just don't just have Al-Qaeda, we have ISIS, and we have Islamists from Central Asia and also China and so forth. The young people obviously use technology and they've accepted the platforms. What content is uh, uh, goes through this? These platforms uh, may not appeal to all of them, but they're exposed to it. What I meant was that, for example, you can't if you get rid of WhatsApp or Telegram or Signal, you're going to impact not just the city dwellers, you know, the, the people that we appeal to, but also the Taliban. Uh, the question is, you know, most 15, 16 year old kids. Uh, are become very ideological, especially if they're vulnerable, they're poor, they can't find a wife, um, they're impoverished, and you know they need money, and they have you know great these great insecurities. And the Islamists have been very quick and very smart in terms of how they've manipulated these young people and they recruit them to fight alongside their fighters or become suicide bombers. So the de-radicalization of these people is going to take time, unfortunately. However, now that they've conquered the cities, what's going to happen to them? And I think it's going to be a challenge for the Taliban as well in terms of how to deal with these guys. Um, I think and I believe that the Taliban also have had their moment of, you know, damn, what do we do now? You know, it's like the dog that caught the car. Um, yeah. there's some, some of the senior members, because you have a 60,000 strong fighting force that's ideologically driven. And you may have a more pragmatic leadership. What do you do? So I think we're going to have a, have a whole series of challenges ahead of us uh, in terms of taming this this victorious army of the Taliban, not just for Afghanistan, but for the entire region. What will the radical Pakistani think in terms of defeating his own military or a guy in Central Asia or a guy in, in even in China, for example? So I think that what this has set things in motion that we will look back in 20 years and say, why the hell did Biden have to do that for? I think one of the things that is going to impact all of this is just money. Suddenly, a lot of money has been vacuumed out of the government coffers. 
it's on the Taliban to supply, you know, goods and services to pay people. Because one of the ways that, you, as like you said, average 16, 17, 18-year-old needs a job, they need some purpose, they need something to do. And if they don't have the money, if they can't feed them, right? Now, on the other hand, I'm reading that uh, money is, comes in through black market places and the Taliban was very smart to kind of take over uh, you know, areas of the country where goods and services come in and they can tax them and make their own money off books, right? What can you tell me about that? I mean, is that uh, where ultimately the battle is won or lost really? is how you can operate and where the money comes from. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think, well, why are these young men driven into the arms of the Taliban? I think fight, you know, being impoverished is one of, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons. Deprivation of, you know, financial, sexual, whatever, uh, contributes to the radicalization of these young kids. But the irony is that if the Taliban cannot engage the world, that money is going to just completely disappear. I mean, for example, for the US to continue its assistance, and they give about $800 million um, to the Afghan government annually, they need to have a presence on the ground. That's what the Congress dictates. If you don't have an embassy, if you don't have a presence, there's no way, there's no development. And the only way they're going to be on the ground is if they recognize the government, and if the government, the new government, um, respects women's rights and respects minority rights and freedom of expression. So for the Taliban, for the leadership, when this is what they need to think about is how do they engage with the world? And if they're smart, they will, you know, they will have a big tent approach. They'll bring in others. They'll even perhaps bring in women and they will moderate their policies. But if they don't, Afghanistan is going to become isolated again. And guess what? The people will suffer. Uh, obviously, the political leadership can survive on you know the drugs trade and whatever, but it's just the public that's going to continue to suffer. Yeah, well, that's the danger: is that Afghanistan becomes like a kind of a black market country. It's all kind of disconnected, and it allows all these sort of rogue characters to come in and operate. You know, I mean, that's one of the questions I have. I'm going to be the first to admit that I'm you know I don't know the whole history of Afghanistan. I've learned just enough to be dangerous, you know, having, having read about it, you know, because it's in the news. But I read today that in the 20th century, there were at least 19 different iterations of the national flag. There's been so much turnover. I've even read, and I don't know where this is coming from, but that some people say Afghanistan isn't even a country. You know, it's just like a strung together series of tribes and regions. And people, you know, might have said that about Spain a hundred years ago before, um, you know, Franco came in. But like, is Afghanistan tameable? Is it a place that can be a coherent country, given the forces on its borders and what it means to the international order? Well, Afghanistan has been around since the 17, mid 1700s. So it's, I think it's older than the U.S. and called Afghanistan with its capital city in Kabul. Right. Um, yeah, so it's had a long history. But, but let me put this to you. Afghanistan was relatively stable up until 1980 when the Russians invaded. And then it became a pawn in this proxy war between the Soviets and the Americans and its Western allies, which led to a million uh, deaths, a million handicapped permanently, um, and 7 million refugees. So we effectively fought 
the West proxy war, and that was the beginning of the end for us. You know, we so we haven't recovered since 1980 or since December of 1979 when the Russians invaded, when the Soviets invaded. So I, I think there's a moral responsibility, and people say, well, for how long? Uh, but I said there is a moral responsibility because the radicalization of Afghanistan happened with the acquiescence of the Americans. The Americans were content to let the let the Saudis and others build camps. They used Islam as an instrument to motivate people and fight the Soviets. They gave us hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars worth of arms, weapons. They uh, promoted and encouraged the cultivation of drugs so they could fund this war. They gave us Stinger missiles to shoot down Soviet aircraft. Um, so, you know, the, the world is also complicit in terms of how radicalized Afghanistan became because the form of Islam that was prevalent in Afghanistan was nothing that we see today. And that happened with the encouragement and the funding of the West, with yeah. the support of the Pakistanis and the, and the Saudis. I think a lot of people forget that chapter in Afghan history, and that's an important one not to forget. When we, you know, jump out of there last week and leave the whole place, that's not just 20 years of, of responsibility thrown to the wind. Like, you know, it's the history goes much, much longer. And, and we are, our history is so tied up. The Cold War, you know, and, and before that, you know, you and I have a, a mutual friend uh, in Tom Freston, who's got a, a deep interest in Afghanistan and spent some of his youth there in the 70s, right? And it was a different country even before that. I, I, I saw a picture pop up the other day, and it was like Duke Ellington in Afghanistan in 1963 mm-hmm. on a State Department tour. And, it, you know, there were different times in Afghanistan when it was like a, you know, a thriving cultural crossroads, right? That's um, yeah. And uh, it must be heartbreaking. Uh, you know, your father was a diplomat, at one time, and uh, it must be heartbreaking to watch your country come to this moment when it didn't have to be this way, and know that it was our, you know, decision to invade, and then then realize that we've made a terrible mistake and get stuck in there for years and years trying to uphold this whole thing. I mean, how does it affect you personally when you're thinking about it? As this is really, in many ways, your homeland. It's like you have an Afghan name. You're, 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 you have relatives from this country. This is a place that has deep meaning to you. You started a company there. What, what does it feel like to you personally? Well, it's it's sad to lose your house, home, business, uh, access to the country if you can never travel there. But, but it's tragic for the people there. And if you look at the pictures of these people who are working with the Americans attempting to leave, they can't reach the airport. Hundreds of you know people surrounding the airport uh, with no access. And the Americans are gonna basically wind down their presence at the airport by the end of the month. You know, perhaps tens of thousands of people will get left behind, uh, people who you're allies. And, uh, and what's gonna happen to the general public? Okay, you can get out 20,000 translators out. What about the 35 million people who are stuck inside? You may be ending your forever war, but the forever war will continue in Afghanistan. Mm, yeah. It breaks my heart, and but I also know that the American public and the American tension span is quite short. 
And uh, the question becomes whether this becomes a subplot in our news cycle, whether or not we continue to pay attention to the suffering. And, you know, on the one hand, uh, we are in a different world in which we're going to be able to see how the Taliban behaves. They are under the eye of the world. Um, and But how interested everybody stays as all these tragedies unfold, you know, I mean, we are in a different age than we were in, even in the Cold War, which when people paid only nominal attention to foreign affairs at all, right? And also, we also know, and this is an interesting twist in the whole thing, that this will be politicized by the conservatives in the U.S., that they will go after Biden for having botched this. And on one level, that's uh, maybe not great, but on the other level, it's going to keep it in the news. And anything that is terrible and tragic that's happening in Afghanistan as a result of these decisions is going to be, you know, circulated and exploited, right? Yeah. Um, and we are going to be forced to pay attention to it no matter what. And uh, on, you know, I'm not driving hope from that, but uh, we, it is our responsibility to keep paying attention. Well, I hope you do. I hope you do, and I hope everyone does. But uh, because just because a tragedy is not discussed publicly doesn't mean that it's not happening, and people are not suffering as a consequence but yes it's going to become a political football um unfortunately but i saw that uh, biden's ratings have dropped uh from like 51 to 45 or 46 percent because of you know his you know his mishandling of this of this drawdown but you know i i just i'm afraid to say that it's going to get worse and the footage is going to be far more jarring than what you've seen in the in the weeks ahead um let's see Let's see. Let's hope I'm wrong. Yeah. Well, what we also hope is that your um, news station can continue to broadcast uh, the truth of what is going on and uh, foment something like conversation and debate in that country so that they can keep intellectual freedom alive. Um, That's a tall order, uh, as you know, and I, I wish the best for your uh, newsroom and your broadcasters in Kabul and and for your um, you know the the future and livelihood of what you're doing there. Thank you, Joe. We'll, we'll need all the luck we can get. Certainly so. And um, people who are listening uh, to this podcast, you should um, find Saad on Twitter and, and follow him because you know uh, your Twitter feed has been really urgent uh, and informative as a way for me. And, and other people, editors at, uh, at Vanity Fair and The Hive, uh, to keep in touch with what's going on and to stay on the beat. And um, we hope to continue to do so. And in fact, as I stand here and uh, speak today, we're going to have you back on this program, okay? Because Thank we you. need to continue this conversation. we got to continue paying attention to the lives of these people who's, who ours are really bound to, whether we like it or not. Thank you. Saad uh, Mosani, thank you for coming on Inside the Hive. Good to be on your show, Joe. Good luck. That's our program this week. I'd like to thank Saad Mosani for coming on Inside the Hive this week. Thank you to our producer, Brett Fuchs, and the people at Cadence 13 who helped make this possible. Please subscribe. Hit the subscribe button. Come back next week. We're going to keep having great interviews like this. Please support our sponsors the way they support this program. And we will see you all next week. Mm-hmm.